Huzzah! Hello and welcome to Hero with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where two 30-something gamers examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular niche RPGs. It's like a book club where you have to tediously build a relationship with your own sister. This is season one, and we're talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. My name is Tyler. And I am not dead. Unlike Square Enix's online gaming experiences, Babylon's Fall, and Final Fantasy VII First Soldier. They are dead. After one year of existing. Brutal take, Nate. We invite you to join us on this adventure by playing Xenoblade alongside these episodes where we will explore Xenoblade chapter by chapter, sometimes multiple episodes per chapter. Today, we're beginning the final chapter. Chapter 17 out of 17. Chapter 17 out of 17 plus one. Plus one. Right. There's future connected ahead of us yet. Yes. I was going to ask if you forgot about that or not, because there would be like a moment where I was be like tyler is your switch near you go to the title screen you are not done yet but i was gonna save that for the final episode but you're aware i'm aware i'm trying not to think about it hey by the time this episode comes out it's going to be a halloween time or pretty close to halloween nate what's your favorite halloweeny sort of game Ooh, good question what's your favorite spooky haunted horrific game I think a lot of games, there aren't as many spooky games as there are like straight up horror or survival in the mainstream. So my answer is the seventh guest for Windows personal computer from like 1993. It was one of the earliest games, maybe not the first, but one of the earliest games to use like motion video or just straight up like produced video in the game itself to... Mm -hmm communicate things and it was uh, a quaint little story about you being drawn into a mansion and seeing apparitions and solving puzzles to unravel a mystery and it was definitely spooky af is it a point and click uh yeah you will you will be reminded of the mist game Mm -hmm. series if you were to play this um and it there's nothing like terribly wonderful about it it's just my first like experience of asking myself am i up for this can i handle this at the age Mm of seven (laughs) so well uh i think they've re-released it as like an anniversary edition or something so if anybody is interested check it out and if it sucks don't blame me you've been warned in my case i'm going to say darkest dungeon which is a squad based roguelike rpg battler dungeon crawler it's very macabre very horrific what's really neat is there's this debuff system where you get afflicted with some sort of psychological as you go through these levels you endure a certain level of stress and as the stress meter builds up these characters have like a psychological break and it could be sadomasochism it could be extreme depression it could be all sorts of these other things or they might rise to the challenge and become like very inspirational and cure stress or reduce stress levels from your party that can happen too and very in-depth um good chin stroking stress strategy game i think i need to just amend with a serious answer if i'm being completely honest the the top of the cream of the crop would probably be bloodborne for me and i won't say too much about it but it's just it's like chef's kiss uh it's not it can be horrifying it can be horror but in terms of spookiness it starts out with all the staples of witches and werewolves and all this 
the things that you expect from the genre, but then it gets into eldritch horror and cosmic horror and things like that. And it has this really cool system where instead of telling you you're going more insane or you're losing your grip on reality, the game has a system where when you witness something quote-unquote horrifying, you gain insight. Or if you come across the corpse of somebody who died from something horrifying, you gain insight. And insight, according to this game, is good. Having more of it means you know more of how the world works. You're not becoming more insane. You're learning more of the truth of the world. And the truth itself is horrifying. That you are just a... Like like Zanza said, you're just bacteria in this disgusting, horrifying universe where beings of colossal proportions are just, you're on their puppet strings and you're all just meat for their meat factory. And so, you know, uh, for, for regular people, that would drive them insane. But for you, the hero, you're learning more. And with that, when your insight levels rise, you're able to see more things hidden on the surface. There are areas of town that look just normally gothic and well-designed or like well-constructed and stuff, but they start to break down and become more derelict as you gain insight. And then you start seeing corpses and skulls embedded in the walls of all the dead people that compose your society. So. That's that's probably actually my real answer for top number one spooky game. It's pretty interesting how the clarity actually makes you feel insane. Yeah, it, it's like a it's a cool dichotomy of saying if you really knew the truth of everything, that's what's scary. Not mm-hmm. like not like this guy is his brain snapped and now he's nuts. It's this, his brain is fully functional and he just has all the information. To a regular person, he seems nuts. But, you know, that is what it is. Should we get going here? Let's get going here. Nate, how did you feel about this first half, first quarter, first third? I have no idea, actually, of this chapter. Yeah, you know, I was expecting that as the final chapter, we were going to have a lot of gameplay, a lot of boss fights, a lot going on. And really, for them to just deliver one short cutscene and then credits roll and we're done, I was like, wait, what? What's going on here? Hold on. Hold on, Nate. What are you talking about? Yeah, uh, like the the cutscene, the end of the game. I I just I started chapter seventeen and it just started playing and how, and I was done. How much of this chapter did you play? All of it. I I'm done, Tyler. Uh, do you do you want what? me to just handle? Do you want me to just handle it here? Well, here I'll I'll here I'll just take it. Don't worry about it. So you know, as the last chapter, Zanza awakened from Shulk and he makes short work of Lady Maynith destroys Mechanus, warps back to Prison Isle, and Prison Isle descends into the Bionis, right? So this chapter starts out with us seeing what's going on inside Prison Isle. We have Golden Boy, Zanza Shulk, in Prison Isle, and he's, like, extending his arms out, the ether's reaching out, and it's connecting to all of these, like, mechanisms within Prison Isle. And for the first time in millennia, He's in perfect harmony with the Bionis. He moves an arm from where he is. Bionis is moving an arm. His his eyes widen. Bionis's eyes light up. And so they're completely in sync for the first time. And uh, he's experiencing, you see this look of euphoria. A smile widens across his face, almost as if like he's experiencing overwhelming pleasure from being one with himself again. But then that quickly turns to pain, agony, terror, 
eyes widen, irises shrink. He searches himself. He's reaching all over his body. He's scratching at his midsection and he's reaching all over himself and he cannot evacuate this seeming some sort of thorn piercing him from within. And uh, we, we see like the denizens of Bionis hear a deep, terrifying voice ring out to all life. They're all hearing it at once. People in Colony 6 are looking up to the sky wondering where the voice is coming from. This deep, booming voice of Bionis rings out. Who the fuck shoved a drill up my ass? From there, we see the the entryway to like the ether mines right below Colony 6. It cha- scene changes, and Authoron is, uh, is emerging from that... Uh, What's the like the elevator entrance that mm-hmm. we came up on? Sure, um, it, it's Authoron. We thought he was dead. We weren't sure what happened to him, and uh, he's he's fully he's fine. And uh, it it pans up to his face, and his we see his eyes behind his glasses, and they are glowing red. Now that changes to a sepia tone flashback of the the final moments of Egil within Mechanis, right? And just as Maynith was, like, giving her life away to protect everybody and we saw that flash of light come from her, there was a split second that we were shown something that happened during this flashback. Egil, he had in one of his giant robotic hands a soul transfer device and in the other hand, Othron's body. <laughs> and with Mana's spirit like the salami in a sandwich, he claps his hands together and joins those three things into one being. He tucks away the Maynith Othron body into his pocket and then continues to play dead for the rest of the scene. The flashback ends, and we now know that that punch that uh, Egil did, the last act for Lady Maynith that he had to perform, was to get this body back onto Bionis and hidden away. So that's we we now see Othron, the red glowing eyes, and behind him a somewhat translucent glowing ghost of Maynith floating behind him. And then credits rolled? And, and, and credits rolled after that, Nate? Nope. In Authoron Maynith's hand, there's a uh, detonation device or something that looks like that. I'm not sure. Oh but it's got it's got like a lever on it, and um, he flicks open the letter. Well, I guess she she flicks open the lever with her thumb. You hear a simple, audible beep responds quietly. The people of Colony 6 all react. They hear rumbling from beneath, then an unbearable mechanical screeching as earth and sky vibrate all around them and the, the, everything's shaking that aforementioned drill that zanza mentioned is coming to life turbines whirling and spinning bionis zanza monado god goldilocks john calvin he screams <laughs> in unbearable pain as every living being on his body goes deaf <laughs> Authoron Manus smiles at the camera, tapping on earplugs recently inserted into their ears. Screw you, asshole. Literally, he says before winking to the viewer. Deftone's uh, song Change starts playing as he walks towards the horizon, and uh, Bionis falls into the sea and everyone drowns. Credits roll. <laughs> I'm going to have to find a new co-host. I'm going to have to. Okay. Um, thanks, Nate. Thank you very much. Well, in my case, the chapter begins with Shulk spinning off in space again. Is he dead? Is this the underworld? Is he in 
space heaven. I mean, as far as we know, he's still got a hole through his chest, right? From from Dixon. And Shulk kind of wonders to himself what the purpose of life is. It's amusing to him, this this um this nihilistic sense of of self. He was never alive. All of this was pointless. But then Alvis comes in to kind of steer the conversation a little bit. You think it's pointless, but it's not entirely pointless. And I don't have the quotes exactly, but the sense I'm getting in this little flash of the beginning of the final chapter is that there's more to Shulk. There's more to... This is seeding another conversation that's coming up a little bit later. Right now, we're just kind of tantalized with a little more head-scratching space dialogue. Yeah, so I guess I did play this. Um, (laughs) It's interesting because Shulk flashes back to watch himself be shot so he right. knows he got shot but he he was back faced pierced from behind shot in the back so to speak so he's able to see dixon's grin and zanza looming over him after he's passed out so he's being granted some level of perception beyond the confines of his mortal self at this moment so i don't know if that's with alvis's help giving him a little bit of perspective here we're gonna get back to this momentarily because this scene doesn't last very long we cut away to the infirmary on colony six at first i thought this was the hidden machina village but jungle is here now in Colony 6 because if you recall the map of Colony 6 there is a little pond and it turns out that well that was by design a monolith soft as a means to kind of let Junks be a modular place that can be well inside Mechanis or on the Fallen Arm or in Colony 6 now too. It's got shops. Yeah they got shops. It's got a couple quest NPCs hanging out. Fior shows Unconscious Shulk a blade, a new blade. It's Monado-like. It's from Mikol. Mikol fashioned this out of the latest Machina technology. It looks like Shulk is going to be okay. According to Lanada, Maineth apparently did something to keep him from dying from the wound in her last moments. And uh, they say that Lanada is tending to him now. And so... I'm curious, is she going to install a catalytic converter in his chest? (laughs) Machina parts? Just like they do did with fiora or maybe she'll put balls on his face or oh my god Nate. or or a butt on his head to keep him going the group gathers and kind of discusses next steps melia says uh, any of the hyantias that survived the telethia transformations probably were uh, half hyantias like themselves and then she says if i turn you're gonna have to kill me and we all kind of have this grim moment from this beautiful young sprightly girl if they ever do transform i will be among them if that time comes you know what to do we know she won't though because that was the whole point of the interracial mixing right right and it begs the question why didn't they i guess like the bionite order would have some hand in preserving racial purity but it seems like they were so kind of pushed to the side and this shadow faction that it begs the question of like why didn't the entire culture of high antia people be like yeah we need to hook up with a hom fast like they've been at this for 10,000 years so for the majority of their society to maintain a high <laughs> high antia percentage within the bloodline fjord can feel shulk's spirit and and makes a pretty interesting analogy about it says that it's like he's sunk to the bottom of a cold dark lake. It's like his consciousness has sunk to the bottom of a cold, dark lake. 
In this moment, Shulk is in this dark hour of midnight, sucked into the belly of the underworld, um, has to be rescued to get out of it. This is a storytelling trope. Before a hero can ascend to uh, grapple with the challenges in front of him, to set the world right, to become master of two worlds, according to the hero's journey, he has to emerge from the, he has to plunge into the underworld and he has to emerge from it again. And he, and this is where he is. This bottom of a cold, dark lake analogy is very, um, has a lot of human history, like uh, the culture of storytelling worldwide. Um, this sense of dropping out from everybody else and being kind of unrecoverable for a while. Of course, he's kind of in a comatose state, laying out in the junks infirmary area. With this game, they revealed that he was just a vessel for the chosen one and he's just a regular ass boy that isn't special in the slightest or so we're led to think in that chapter and we have to get to that place where we need to find something better and bigger to hang our hat on than being a chosen one now there are some series out there that don't do that some highly acclaimed famous series about a young special boy where they just spend all six seven eight entries worshiping the guy and at the end he does the thing he was meant to do without any conflict whatsoever and it, it just drives me nuts <laughs> that they don't see like where's where's the rub where's that journey of coming through adversity when you just kind of had the ending you told me you were going to have right at the beginning are you drawing an analogy to a particular series i am but i don't want to anger anyone out there so I'll, I'll okay. leave it at that. Thunbin says, even if Zanza is our creator, he doesn't get to take our lives on a whim. Even though he's our creator, that doesn't afford him the right to take our lives on a whim. But Alvis says those hom, those hom-like moralizations do not apply to a god, and Ryan and Alvis get into a tiff about this, and this is stressing out Fiora, who excuses herself. She cannot bear to watch the dum-dum humiliate himself any longer. So we take control of Melia, who also excuses herself from the arguments to see how Fiora is doing. We're able to explore Colony 6. Uh, despite Bionis moving around a lot, everything seems completely in order here and everything is completely level. I guess, thanks, Bionis. Right, yes. Yeah, did we ever figure out if Bionis has its own gravity and regardless of posing, it's all gonna stay that way? Does it have localized gravity or is it just like he never moved his leg that entire time? I think he never moved his leg the entire time. Zanza's taking okay. a, a snack break while we okay. are figuring out what we want to do next. Melia is able to accept quests here, explore a little bit, but really I'm just I'm not that interested in finding out what Melia would do in her free time here, so I go straight to the objective. They talk about Maynith's uh, spirit inside of Fiora here. It turns out that the, the device on her chest is the Mechonis's Monado. It's not a sword, it's the seal, it's the thing on her, it's the brooch thing on her chest here. However, now that Zanza has the weapons uh, that Maynith and Fiora used, Maynith's energy is depleting from Fiora. This moment in the conversation goes a little too fast for me because we've just confirmed that Makanis does have a Monado. It isn't a sword, or maybe it is the crystal plus the sword in the same way that um, Zanza has a spirit and a sword entity as well. And I feel like this is highly undersold in the moment. Monados, can they just be manufactured at this point? Because we've 
been given this air of reverence over what the Monado mm-hmm. is the entire game. But now we're crafting new ones for Shulk. Like, does he need a Monado outlet? Otherwise, he's going to burst at the seams from blue light. <laughs> and he has to wield some sort of energy sword. He wasn't before he picked up the Monado back in Colony 9. And then it also makes me think about how nonchalantly that old cutscene with now we know it was Vanea installing the Monado into Fiora, mm-hmm. but this was like, I don't was that chapter four or five we saw that? Gosh. I think it was at the end of Satoral Marsh or earlier, uh, maybe. I'd, I'd have to look it up. That was so early that we knew nothing about it and we thought like we thought like Lumcar was soul transferred and everybody gets a free soul transfer right. when you go to Mekanas, you know. And now it turns out like this is the one thing. Like they shoved God into a little girl. <laughs> a little dead girl. Living dead girl. <laughs> <laughs> Rob Zombie for y'all. Yeah. Anyways, the point the point that Yuri is trying to make is that her life force is depleting without this maineth energy. Will your body cease to function? I'll be fine for now. There's still some stored energy left. But then what? And so she's kind of having some sort of mortal reckoning. She would like to keep on living and carry on being with Shulk, to which Melia asks a very pointed question. Do you feel that strongly for him? Yes. Why I'll fight on and help him in any way I can. After all of the heartfelt sharing between the two girls, we have to eradicate the Bechdel test again <laughs> with failure <laughs> at the very end of the conversation where it has to go back to being about Shulk because these two women do not exist without Shulk. They need the intrinsic romantic connection for them to have any meaning whatsoever. But Melia thinks I'm nothing compared to her. I'm nothing compared to her. Ladies, if you're listening, don't judge your worth based on how strong your devotion and connection to a man is. And guys, too, the inverse is also true. You can be of worth as your own person and not defined by your connection to somebody else. And I feel like these two characters struggle with that. He's a little homely, but he's kind of demigodly as well. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> He's the cute little golden-haired boy. The quaint, unassuming demiurge of unknown repute. I don't know where I'm going with this. Yours running low on batteries, and we... Your sirens. The gang races back to Colony 6, and the Telethi are attacking, led by Dixon on his stupid whale. <laughs> According to him, we just don't know when to give up. Seems like the inverse is true, because he's the one that's badgering us constantly. He pats himself on the back on how tough he is, but he only sends his beasts into battle. Dixon is poking and prodding at us. Uh, he he says a few things of interest to Melia, that Callian, in fact, didn't kill him, obviously, since he's here. But he says that your brother died for nothing, one. Two, you'll meet him soon. Three, it's cool though, you'll get reborn after anyway once they do the reboot. And four, your brother can be your boyfriend next time. Looks like that high end tier's big bro died for nothing. You'll meet him soon enough. You might even be reborn if you return to Lord Zanza. Who knows? He might be your boyfriend in the next life. These were the kind of creepy old man comments I think uh, put. Larithia off to Dixon. The your brother can be your boyfriend shit. More than once uh, in this part of the chapter we played, there has been some suggestive language and imagery about this incapacitated Ientia 
prints, and this is the first one. Why Dixon would say that in this moment is absolutely baffling. Ever since he did his heel turn, he's he keeps doing this na-na-na-boo-boo stuff. He's grinding her nose into the mud here, but the depths to which he's wanting to do it includes sexually suggestive relations with your brother? Your dad? Your mom? Maybe that special someone! I don't get it. Yeah, I, I definitely rose an eyebrow at that quote as well. Think of all those times he was like the Obi-Wan for us in like Satoru Marsh where he's helping Shulk sort out his family issues and giving him encouragement. And not just like, yeah, keep going, mate. You'll get it done. It's like he's helping him with psychological contemplations and identity crisis stuff. And it's like when you think about Dixon's actual role, why does he give a shit? <laughs> If you're just a doll shell for God, what do you care? Dixon, you look bored. Exactly. Yes. Walk your talk, moron. Anyways, we go back into outer space and Elvis and Shulk are having another dialogue in this subconscious sort of ethereal underworld state. And Elvis brought the antidepressants. And Elvis brought the antidepressants. Uh, in this conversation, we do learn something pretty interesting. He posits the question to Shulk. Zanza is all powerful. And if he can do whatever he wants all the time, why is it important to destroy you, Shulk? And the answer, the answer is part of all of the Monado philosophization and vision philosophization that we've been hearing from Alvis and other, and other moments throughout the game here. And, and what that is, is you do exist beyond the bounds of fate. Even the fate that Zanzas has complete comprehensive control of. And so you are an anomaly that needs to be taken care of, which means there is room for you to interfere with Zanzas plans, Zanzas planses. And so the question Alvis asks of Shulk is that, are you going to defy fate and follow your own path? Or are you going to follow the path that Zanza has set out for you and everybody else in this reality? Shulk realizes something that isn't very obvious to the player. Alvis, are you? And Alvis concedes, yes, you already know. You know what I am and what you must do. Shulk looks at his palm, holds it to his chest, and glows with incredible light. The scene ends before we can see what happens next, but I went back to see the end of this scene here. And in these shots where we're coming to a climax of this conversation, the sun in this cosmos is very bright in the background. Alvis is kind of eclipsing it in the foreground. And when Shulk starts radiating with this power, I don't know if it's the lens flare or some other sort of visual trick, but the sun's light goes out when Shulk starts radiating his own light. Alva says, you know what I am. You know what I am. Just say it, say it plainly. What is he? Well, I already know. I, I you, already, you already know. I, yeah, I shake my head and I go, God damn it, is he another giant and that doesn't have a stupid explanation for why he's actually a Homs with an English accent and not a godlike, purple, tattooed, long-bearded... I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking earlier in the podcast, you said he was a sword, right? Yeah. I th I'm still going on that because of the, the thread I'm tugging on from Super Smash Brothers. <laughs> that is the spoiler I have in that a character from Super Smash Brothers wears the same chess piece as Alvis himself around his neck and that that character is also a sword and I did not intend to get that information and I did not seek it. I just have it from having nieces that play Smash and have bought all the DLC. 
I was kind of right in a previous chapter where I would say that like the primary sin you could commit as a being of a Bionis would be to leave Bionis because they are all part of an engine. That's all the only reason that any of them exist is be pieces in that moving mechanism. And so if people want to leave it, it threatens the engine breaking down. And those same people don't have any purpose or ability to survive as not pieces of the engine, according to Alvis. So it leads to the destruction of them both. So they're kind of postulating that, or at least from the perspective of Zanza, the Bionis, it's... He's doing it for the good of all life on Bionis because he doesn't believe they have the ability to exist outside of the cycle. That at least if you die and are reborn and your your brother's boyfriend, <laughs> your your brother's girlfriend in the next life, it's okay because you would have just been obliterated anywhere else. And we don't actually know that that's true yet because Argus and Egil thought that it was possible to exist outside of the cycle. They thought that that would be the inevitable future they arrived at. That's a good point, Nate. Hmm. Another another thing about Shulk being able to change things and being outside of fate. This is still super weird and contradictory to me because even with all of the things he changed, it still ended up leading him to exactly what he was explicitly predestined to do anyway. For example, if I'd let Ryan die to a giant spider as fate willed it, <laughs> I highly doubt the campaign would have unfolded as expected. It was my intervention that allowed the campaign to continue because do you think Shulk would have made it all the way to Makanis without Ryan? No, I don't think so. Yeah, so it's the intervention that made the quest possible in the first place. So our changing things was changing it to Zanza's will, not away from Zanza's will. And I kind of felt that way. You can go back to old episodes. That's what I... That's where I was going with this. The second I saw that everything on Prison Island happened exactly as foretold was that there are fixed points within fate that not even Shulk could divert from. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because Alvis says the words like, you, you had the ability to save people. And the video is showing the Emperor and Gadult, people we absolutely did not save. Back in Colony 6, we party up and we dedicate ourselves to protecting this Homs, well, I guess it's a multiracial uh, community here to, you know, pr protect it from the Telethia attack. We fight a Cerro Telethia. It looks like the one from the Hyantia grave and an Inja who move like ninja. We have to manage this fight on our own. Then Fiora blasts a Telethia with her laser drones. This is a Power Rangers fight scene that we're not actually playing. Eventually big Hydra type dino beasts surround us all. And then Shulk comes back. Goku is here. I mean, Shulk is here. <laughs> also, can I say uh, this is the first time that I recognize what the things on Fiora's back do because I haven't exactly played as Fiora a whole lot. Oh, yeah. But she has funnels. And that's a Gundam reference. But the first time I saw anything like this in anime, little back pieces that float independently off your body and fire lasers mm -hmm. was in the uh, mobile suit Gundam Shars counterattack. There are funnels. I don't know if they debut earlier in the series, but that's the place I remember them existing. And because people from space have mind powers, they're able to send signals out to independent devices external to the Gundam itself. They didn't have Wi-Fi at this time, so they had to use psychic powers to do this. Um, so 
Yeah, those exist, but they also remind me of Ellie's gear as well, because she had these uh, Xeno gears. Yeah, they were called air rods. Air rods, yeah. So there's been multiple times where we've pointed to Fiora reminding us of like a an Ellie redo almost. Yeah, in a lot of ways it is. She she smacks of Ellie quite a bit. Fiora's like special arts ability, the the one that's unique to her. Well, I guess all abilities are unique to everybody, but like the the one in the center of the skill bar is a a nuke that you can use. You know, kind of on cooldown there. And any time that Fiora has a, um, we get a mortal damage death vision. I always go to warn her and I queue that up because it's always going to be up. And I figure, why use any other skill than just burst this thing down that's going to assassinate her? I, I like that skill, although I don't actually play Fiora, like personally. This chapter, as I'm preparing to do more content, I did put her in my party and started building affinity with a few characters. She also has a move that just has the icon of the soul transfer Maynith Monado crystal thing. And that thing blasts for tons of damage. You just have to have really high tension to use it. But mm. there's times where the, the death warning, you tell her to use that. It'll wipe out an entire party to the point where I've started pulling extra mobs like five, six at a time at my level because I know it's going to send her into that state and then she can just blow them to hell it's a lot of fun sweet leveling tips i need them um shulk is determined his eyes glow blue he cleaves through telethia like it's nothing he foresees telethia blasts and dodges them like it's nothing Dixon says it's time to get my hands dirty his will dive bombs us you think it's about time to fight Dixon himself and we fight not Dixon again yeah shulk has the mechnado as i want to call it and it works functionally exactly the same as our monado all of the abilities we acquired all of the skills we've powered up or arts, I should say, that we've powered up. Everything exactly as it was before. Maybe even a little extra damage. So it begs the question, why were we worshipping this thing for 10,000 years? I guess because it had God on the inside. It makes me think this, like, a lot of Japanese series, they they keep sealing their bad guys inside of swords and devices and weapons. <laughs> and it just makes me think, you know, guys, you just got to kill it. You got to commit murder. It's the only way. No, we've got to imprison it for 10,000 years. You got to get rid of the ventilation shafts and you got to stop sealing guys up inside of weapons. It's just, it's never going to work. And I know you got the right jailer down for the first, for the first time, the first jailer that probably was one of the people that put the spirit in its place that locked them up but you've got 10,000 years and you need to carefully vet the subsequent jailers you need to scrutinize every detail you need contingencies and contingencies for your contingencies because this evil spirit is going to wreak havoc if you sleep on uh, on all of these responsibilities and this is happening everywhere in jrpgs did nobody tell melia's dad about or think to pass on like, hey, that thing on Prison Island, do not listen to it under any circumstances. <laughs> do not go there. Do not fuck with Prison Island. I know he was like cautious about it, but he was like, hmm, I'll have to think about it. And there should just be like the second that that goes off, like the we had that AI in the High Antia tomb 
The second that the uh, Emperor said, hmm, I'll have to think about it, alarms should have just been blaring in Alchemoth and ancient spirits rose from the ground and be like, no, 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 no. Brilliant ideas that never happened. I've got more when we get to the tail end of the chapter of brilliant ideas that never happened. Like turning on the drill in his ass. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that happened in someone's reality. So this fight is a joke again. And Dixon laments, how could Shulk read my movements? WTF is going on. It's interesting that Dixon doesn't know the answer to that because Alvis was the one who taught him about the Telethia's movement mind read thing. Mm, mm-hmm. So Dixon doesn't know that Alvis is playing him or Alvis is coaching us to this level. Yes. Hey, you know what? That's very possible and a very good segue into what happens next because Dixon says something very suspicious when the battle ends. He hollers out, come on, I don't appreciate you letting me do all the hard work let's go kind of beckoning somebody out towards him to shed their facade and join his side who's he referring to nate alvis alvis no not alvis we thought we was one of the good guys what it can't be another trinity boys member Mm -hmm. yep he's part of the trinity giant gang Alvis says nothing. He walks very purposefully, deliberately, slowly from the party's side of the battlefield outside of Colony 6 to Dixon's side, saying nothing. Shulk says, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter what he is. And so what I mentioned about how, how this is a very good segue. Okay, so yes, Alvis might be a giant and he's allied with Zanza and Dixon. Why is he helping Shulk? Why doesn't he have anything very confirming to say to Dixon in this moment? There is something else going on here. There's another plan going on here. Is he going to sabotage Zanza? Is he trying to replace Zanza uh, as a spirit of Monado once he gets Shulk into the right position to, to destroy Zanza? Because he's the only one that can, according to the dream talk. Something suspicious is afoot here, well outside of the conversation of Alvis turning heel on everybody. So the Trinity members that serve Bionis, right? I don't, I don't know that we can get into this, but we know who the third person is. I think so. Our when we fight Larithia, her boss name is Disciple Larithia, and 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 Egil calls Dixon Zanza's disciple. So I took that as Larithia is number three. You don't think Argolis is part of the Trinity? Maybe, but that we we have yet to confirm that Alvis is a giant. Because otherwise, what you have then is the Trinity is made up of several races: a giant, a Hyantia, and a Homs, if that's what Alvis is. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But we'll have to see what happens with Alphys, big picture, because we are not there yet. We have not made it that far. Hmm. I thought all the Trinity were, would be giants. I don't know. That might be the case. Anyways, so once Alvis stands alongside Dixon, he says, it's time for Shulk to decide, does the world belong to you or Zanzo? This is a very leading question. Again, very suspicious. Dixon says something really, really strange. He doesn't care either way whether Zanza is in control or Shulk. WTF. Alva speculates that Zanza desires the same. It doesn't matter to Zanza either way. I don't get that either. It's interesting. It makes me think of something very coincidental. I'll quickly reference it. Another game that came out of the nearly exact same time as this was Final Fantasy XIII. That game features a society built by a god that everyone and all the pieces of that society are just to serve an engine that is endlessly repeating. And so these gods are actually waiting for somebody to finally come and kill them so they can be free of this never-ending cycle that's been tormenting them where they're just 
part of a machine. And it made me think maybe that's how Alvis and Dixon view their roles as well. Dixon saying, I don't care either way. I'm no matter what happens, I'm just a tool in this and I don't get any say. So yeah, go kill Zanza, whatever, who cares? But he seems to love the the drama of it, the battle. So he he's looking to get maybe a fight out of it is the biggest value that Dixon can get out of this whole thing. After Dixon says, either way is good for me, again, WTF, well, Alvis has one last thing to share. You understand, don't you, Shulk? Again, leading comment to Shulk. Shulk's eyes glow green, and we see a vision of Prison Island also glowing green. Then we cut to Shulk and Fiora battling a giant, but this one is clean-shaven, is this giant form Alvis. They have one last exchange, which I thought was actually kind of neat. Dixon says, you know, hey, we'll, we'll be here at the Bionis Core. We'll be on our best behavior. And Shulk claps back with, and we will be the best guests you've ever had. Now, I don't know what that means exactly, but this kind of throws Dixon off his game. He laughs and says, hey, that's quite a good comeback. I'm impressed. We'll be on our best behavior. And we will be the best guests you ever had. Ah, that's quite a good comeback. I'm impressed. The two blast off. And in this little moment, it feels like some actually real dialogue where people aren't actually spitting badass shit or expressing expository dialogue in a kind of an obligatory, mechanical, forced sort of way. But this little bit of, hey, that was a good comeback, although they are completely opposed to one another, put a smile on my face because they felt like real characters for a nanomillisecond. If you want a masterclass on real characters, I don't know, that might be dragged through the mud for this. Go watch the old Lethal Weapon movies. Oh, yeah? Yep. It, Mel Gibson, uh, you might have opinions of Mel Gibson. I certainly do, but I'm able to separate art from artist. But also Danny Clover. And there's just a lot of, I don't even know if you call it improv or if they were just given a loose script, but it feels so raw and real to just have these two guys shooting back and forth. I'd say maybe movies two and three are a little bit more of them in their stride than the first one. Sheriff's Department. We're, we're LAPD. LAPD. What are you boys doing down there? Well, we're in the middle of a case. Yeah. Scotch. <laughs> and it was originally super serious, but when they found the two actors just playing off of each other and their dynamic, they're like, okay, we might incorporate a little bit more comedy into these because they just do it so well and so naturally. So the original writers, the people who put the script together, didn't have that in it. And it kind of what you're saying about this moment of like, there's a moment where nobody has to deliver exposition for any reason but they still have an opportunity to say words and the writers are like, oh, wait, how would people actually talk? What would they say in this moment? Makes me think of that. It's a little clumsy, but I like it because they feel real. That's something I always liked about Goku, as we're kind of, as I name dropped Goku earlier, is that Dragon Ball Z is not afraid to make Goku a giant dumbass. And it was interesting because the American dub, before they started adhering to the original scripts a little bit more closely, back when anime dubbing was like the Wild West, they tried to make him into this like Batman character of like, I am justice i am the light i will bring peace to the universe i am the hope of the universe i am the answer to all living things that cry out for peace i am protector of the innocent i am the light in the darkness i am truth ally to good nightmare to you 
he never said any of that in the original Japanese. <laughs> yeah, Goku's kind of a big dork, but you love him for it. Right. Okay, so at that point, Dixon mentions that he's feeling fear. It's the first time he's ever felt fear and his hands shaking. And it's like, maybe this is what it's like to be a, a living creature and not just be God's puppet. Interesting, I guess so. Mikol hosts the next group huddle here, but right away, Shulk excuses himself and we have a heart-to-heart with Fiore here. This is our calm before the storm sort of talk where we don't know if we're going to live or die. And this is especially true for Fiore because her quote-unquote batteries are running low. That is describing her situation with uh, two broader strokes, I'll say. Shulk asks himself, why would Alvis speak to me in my dreams? Fiora says that she must have made this own wish as well. Uh, then privately, Fiora says she feels like she's dying and pleads to the heavens to let me be with Shulk for just a little more longer. Now, she's Shulk invites Fiora to go to Lenata to get inspected because she thinks something might be wrong with her, but she's avoiding this. She, she's avoiding this confrontation. And you know what? Lenata might have something to assist with this. And so I feel like in this moment, Fiora is digging her own grave just to give us a little more melodrama as if we didn't have enough. I will say it is strange to have a late game addition to the roster who begins to feel like they're dying three or four chapters later. That's kind of been the whole story of Fiora from the start. We got one good chapter with Fiora, and now she's been, like, in crisis mode basically the entire time. Right. The two return to the huddle, and we start discussing the plan. Well, Zanza is inside the Bionis, right? Well, how do we get in there? Well, as part of Eggle's final move, his last gift to Shulk and to everybody else, he uh, opened a big cavity in Bionis' chest for which we can try to fly inside. This wound is Eggle's final attack. So our plan is to sneak inside the wound, get to the Bionis core, and take out Zanza. Uh, my advice to Zanza, if you are a super god in control of a giant titan, um, you better assimilate life quick to suture that shit back up. But he ch- he does not do that. He's still having a snack break. And then the scene kind of comes to a close as everyone does compassionate, arc-completed, commemorative one-liners. But Fiora just says Shulk. Yeah, time to knock some heads. Ricky never lose. For Ricky family, Ricky win. We must show this god our unyielding will to survive. The suffering of my people will not be in vain. The crimes against our friends will not go unpunished. Shulk. <laughs> That's all her character amounts to. It's sad. I'll point out that our coup de gras seems to be inserting our junks into titan holes. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Junks blasts off from Colony 6, and we head over to this cavity in the the, the belly of Bionis here, and this scene goes by very quickly. Why the brevity, Monolith Soft? Why the brevity? Why isn't Bionis slashing at the air at us, trying to keep us from getting to the most vulnerable spot you could possibly have in this moment here? Zan is not paying attention. Dixon's not paying attention. Maybe it's a trap. I don't really know. But uh, we arrive at the Bionis wound in the in the belly pretty effortlessly. Now, I'm going to call a little bit of bullshit here just for a second, right? Eggle's, like, final act, his biggest sacrifice was to create this hole that we could fly through. You know another way that you can get to this area is if you could just jump two feet higher in the third lung of Bionis, you would be able to get to this area Anyway, Mm. you wouldn't need junks at all. So if somebody had brought a ladder to the third lung, they would have full unfettered access to this area. Hold on. Hold on. I got to stop you. So that 
I know what you're talking about. There's an elevated tunnel that goes from the Satoral Marsh area of the Bionis interior to this part of the Bionis interior that we're accessing through the wound. Um, but was that the bottom? Was that like the the ether pool pit that was a thousand feet below all of the other parts of the zone that we we're getting into otherwise? Or was that accessible? I have no idea. It was accessible. Now you might be able to make the argument of, well, you couldn't traverse up to some of matters, but let's just think about this here. We've got a period of 10,000 years and you have a race of people with wings on their head that can fly. We'll, we'll get there. Or at the end of this segment of the chapter, I'll point out some possible other solutions that they could have come up with. Sure. Now, Nate, once we get dropped off at the Bionis interior here, we are released to plunge deeper into Bionis or to go questioning. Did you do any questioning before you got in there? Yes, I did. First off, this place is the best place to level. If you're kind of on the leveling curve, this would be your next objective. But me being a completionist, I wanted to go take care of side quests, make sure other things didn't time out. I indeed cannot go back to Mechanis in any capacity. Yes. So that's all locked out. And I'm a little disappointed in that so yeah this place is the best place to level and i wanted to do side quests and kind of digest all of that but we're not going to do that because a lot of the quests about halfway through we find ourselves unable to progress because there's like a level 90 level 95 mob that is blocking our progress on actually finishing the storyline of the quest so we might need to do a like a wrap-up half episode of all of our side quests or we tackle that next time in between finishing the game. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Although we probably won't talk too much about uh, questing in this episode, it is worth pointing out that Venea lays on a bunch of quests for us to get ultimate weapons, or they look like ultimate weapons to me. Does she call them like Monado weapons for everybody in our party? No, they're actually Monados for Shulk that just have different properties. Oh, they're just for Shulk. Yeah, like one of them has increased defense, so he can be a little bit more tanky. Uh, one of them takes away like the auto attack range so it's always a max value but you lose your crit stat mm. it's kind of an either or situation of like which monado do you like the most oh but it just the whole idea of mass producing monados at this point it's like wait what the <laughs> we were lamenting a game that the entire plot revolved around this one singular item for so long now we're here where you can just make as many as you like maybe shulk is so powerful that you impress your power into the monado so in addition to these Monado quests, there is a vendor also in Junks that offers a variety of armor sets for Fiora, and they also are very stat-specific. There's a defensive one, there's an attack one, there's an ether one, and there's a speed one. And they're very, very pricey. I, I sold a bunch of inventory and I bought up it all. Do I need it all? No. And I'm currently wearing the tanky set on them because I'm grinding right now. I don't want to get a game over while I'm grinding because experience per hour, you know, I want to keep things moving forward properly. I'm in the same boat I've been doing grinding so I can digest more content. I now have everybody wearing their beach outfit. Every single character fully decked out in their beach wear while doing it just because for the most part during my grind sessions there aren't going to be any cutscenes, and so I think it's just funny. Nice. Okay, so we've seen this environment before. When we transferred from Satoral Marsh to Machna Forest, we went through the Bionis interior and it was a fungal forest 
It's kind of kind of gray and white and purpley. There's all kinds of varieties of fungus uh, on the ground and on the walls. And we could tell back then that there were other rooms here that we couldn't access before. Well, now we're exploring the rest of the zone because we're accessing it from a higher place or maybe just I'll just say from another place that grants access to the zone here from the outside from, from Junks' entry point. Okay, so the first room or two looks very familiar, very much like the trachea area that we experienced back in when we were doing the Satoral Marsh stuff. But eventually it opens up into this colossal room. Well, we now know that the Bionis is awake because it's a completely reinvigorated zone with life teeming about every area. There are veins all creating an interconnected highway of interior flesh. There are blood cells or the like closest we can think of what blood cells would look like floating about in like a I don't even know if it's like a halo or if it's just like a stream that's I think it's a stream they're like they're like lanes of giant translucent red blood cells going from one end of the zone to the other constantly. And it's interesting there's telethia flying all over and also other biological organisms in there, but telethia kind of fly along that stream or if you're looking at the scope of your first entrance into the zone, you see them way off in the distance flying in a pattern the same way the stream is, and it's lending that idea that these are a defense mechanism. Yeah. They're just like blood cells cells to Bionis. They're not people, they're not a race. They might have become those things or laid dormant as those things, but their true purpose is to just attain this form that exists as a biological defense mechanism for the body. Mm -hmm. And it, it's it's set with that juxtaposition of this creature that we previously saw as like majestic and royal and almost angelic in a way from the way the statues portrayed them and showed their connection to at least high entia culture it's all kind of changed now to have stripped all of that away to just they are again part of the machine part of the biological machine this is a large round room and we transfer along it along these narrow paths a thousand or several thousand feet above this sea of green glowing ether another comment i'll make about the zone is that the, some of these platforms that we walk along come up have little kind of pointed trees i mean they don't look they don't look like trees but they have a trunk and they have these sort of branches that kind of strike out. At first I thought they were statues that were shooting off this sort of energy into other places of the zone, but thought more on it, these are neurons firing. Because if you've seen pictures of neurons, they kind of have this claw end of them where they pass along, I don't know what they are, chemicals, enzymes, things like that from one neuron to another in the synapses. And those sort of tree-like structures are where they release and capture the information or the energy or the chemicals that pass between the two. I'm revealing how little I know about biochemistry in this conversation, but I can tell you. Yeah, I'm letting you take it. <laughs> what? Yeah, I'm letting you handle it because it makes me seem smart in comparison. No, I'm just kidding. I'm right there with you. Right. Anyways, what I'm trying to say is it's a cool effect to see in this zone. And the last thing I'll say about what the zones kind of looks like is that in the center is a giant beating heart. Yep. Yeah. And we presume that we need to traverse these catwalks of suspended veins to get to the heart. 
Well, we get a little visitor that directs us. We do. Who do we meet, Nate? Larithia taunts us from atop the heart. <laughs> There's something she wants to show us. So she's awaiting us. For me, knowing that she's gone full evil, that there isn't that like back and forth with Alvis and developing technologies and wondering, hmm, what side is she on? Seeing her go like stupidly full evil, I've kind of lost all intrigue in her as a character. And you might say like, oh, well, you were only ever into her appearance. It's like, no, I'm very like in the same vein of Xenogears. I want to see how these quote unquote villainous characters break. Do they have a detailed backstory that lets us know what compels them to do what they do and really she's now she mumkar for me mm, interesting there's not much there anymore sure sure this scene doesn't play out for very long she's kind of there to breadcrumb us along the zone uh, we're probably going to run into her once we get to where we're needing to go following that we're released to go explore the zone this is a pretty neat difficult to traverse zone um a good place to grind um we fight predominantly telethias they look like the Mantis type, the, the erect bipedal type, there are the whale types, there are these translucent creatures as well. Some of them are stalks coming out of the ground that look like the tentacles that um, grappled Sharla in the Gower Plains chapter. And there are others that look like beetles, I think they were, like giant, giant beetles. There are also the Hydra type Telethius here on the ground. Um, some pretty challenging elites as well. What was your experience going through the zone, Nate? Well, those blue translucent enemies, they're called Sil Lua's, yes. the Xenoblade version of renaming things where at first I'm like, wait, what is that supposed to mean? And then an hour later, I'm like, oh, you dumbass. They're cells. They're just cells. They're just, the game has to like add extra, use like a different consonant and add extra vowels in there. But it, it made sense after I thought about it for just a little bit <laughs> that we're fighting like protective cells just like the red blood cells and just a different variety. This zone, I liked that and in a way you kind of always knew you were going in somewhat of the right direction, but there were so many branching paths and places to explore that you were rewarded for kind of going off that path. Mm -hmm. With either experience or some of the best named elites in the game, like Victorious Gross <laughs> or Officer Robusto. Officer Robusto, he gave me a hard time. I remember him. He was one of those trans and beals. Yeah, it makes me think, is there a law enforcement structure within the interior of Bionis that they have to dub somebody officer? <laughs> also, I found a happy duck, and I was wondering what was making him so happy. Happy duck? I didn't get a happy duck. Uh, he was at the end of a pathway. <laughs> I found a happy duck. Wasn't that cute? I did go down every path and explore every nook and cranny and dive down back into the third lung, our original location that we visited. Yeah, I explored those two, and I also went back to that to that area as well it's populated with Telethius now there are some elites out there too yeah I cleaned up after these previous chapters I was so happy to have new content that involved me playing a video game yeah yeah you had gotten a little bit farther in this chapter than I had and you were texting about it and you were talking about this word that I have been pretty unfamiliar with what what was that what was that word you you used to describe what you were going through gameplay <laughs> 
Gameplay, that was it. Yeah, yeah, it's been so long uh, since I've had gameplay in this game. I just, I, it's, it seems like such a, such a long memory here. Um, my friends and I, we get together and we talk about gameplay, you know. We sing about it in, in song and we talk about it in stories and sometimes I dream about gameplay in Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. And it's crazy too because like they had these fights where if you don't push any buttons, you die and you have to try again. And then if you do push buttons, the other guy dies and it stays dead and you won the fight. What what happens afterwards? You can go do whatever you want. You do what? There's no like getting halfway through the fight and then the uh, the enemy takes a giant shit and then you have to watch a cutscene. Okay. Yeah, that 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 makes sense to me. You you fight up you fight an enemy and then you have a cutscene. No, no, I'm saying you fight the enemy, you win the battle and you get a cutscene. Then the en the enemy is dead and it's over. And you get a cutscene. You, you might not get a cutscene. You might just oh. go to the next location. Oh. I mean, sometimes there are cutscenes, yes. We're rebuilding our game knowledge here after so much time out in the wilds of just cutscene abyss. <laughs> the cutscene abyss. That's our long, dark hour of midnight underworld <laughs> experiences the players. Okay, enough of that nonsense. Darkest dungeon, coldest cutscene. The coldest cutscene of them all. It's the one that slices deepest, or slices longest. Shout out to Xeno Saga. Yes. We get to the heart after much grinding and really enjoying this zone, frankly. Indeed. Indeed. Do you remember any conversation that happens before Larithia shows up? Or do we just go right into Larithia? Yeah, we just, it kind of walks in right to her. Thank God. Yeah. Hold up, gang. In the pre-boss conversation, Fiora claps back at Larithia with this brilliant zinger. Everyone who lives in this world has a life. We each had a pretty good laugh about it when it happened, but forgot to bring it up here. Okay, let's get back to it. She's inspired by our passion. She summons the Kallian Telethia. His head is still intact. She utters the phrase, his transformation is complete. Is it? Doesn't look like it, dude. No. There's a head right fucking there. She proceeds to give him a soft and polygonally challenged kiss. <laughs> Where it doesn't look like they're actually kissing, but maybe in the original Wii version, you especially couldn't tell that they weren't kissing. Mm. But here, it's it's a little it's a little rough to repurpose this scene with the new character models. In the Wii version, she just slaps his Telethia ass. <laughs> yes, she shares that Telethia apparently means that which eliminates impure life. She merges into Laura Calithea. Hmm. Wait, uh, so hold on, Telethia. Larithia, does her name mean something about impure life? Interesting. Or eliminating? Because she's got that Thea in there. They look like the uh, giant Sephiroth merged demon Genova body of himself. His head on his own giant Genova body. Do you remember that? Yeah, they. I, I do remember that. Yeah, they, it does kind of look like that. The two have merged. I want to scale you back for just a second here about that kiss. This is the other obliquely suggestive moment in, in reference to Cal because Callie wasn't there when Dixon, you know, posited that, hey, you might have an ancestral relationship in the next reality with your with your brother. Here's another sort of strange moment happening with Callie here. For what reason? I don't really get. I think this is just supposed to infuriate the party. Again, grinding our nose into the mud, debasing our friend here with this seductress's kiss. And when they do merge, I went back and I looked at the animation, but when the two merge, Larithia is behind the Callie head and shoulders, and her 
her arms come down around his neck and kind of hold his telethia chest gently in front of him. So this is sexualized. For what reason? I'm not really following. Maybe this is just, you know, Lorithia is a sexually expressive villain. It's also a little bit Xenogears, for example, has this moment where anybody that's like pure of heart or pure of character is afforded a tragic sequence of events about to befall them. The initial wedding that's happening at the beginning of the game, when you learn about the main character's mother being a pure-hearted character, what eventually is going to befall them, and this idea that the people who are the truest good of the good guys at least if they're not on the the main roster, the playable character roster, mm-hmm. those good people are just going to be subject to the abuse of the ruthless. That's a very common theme in these games that I've noticed. You can't just be a wonderful, magnanimous character, take up a certain amount of spotlight, and escape unscathed. Sure, yeah. Beyond that, we talked earlier about Callian and the his sister becomes his girlfriend thing, and it just shot me back to also Xeno Gears. We do have a royal family member who's cousin is also going to become his girlfriend in hinting i don't know what's going on there maybe we have to have a talk about takahashi and his recurring ideas of royal family members mating Mating. this boss fight kicked my teeth in over and over and over again uh yeah i have that the fight is crazy in my notes what was your experience what troubled you the most okay so i'll I'll explain what the mechanics are i know you know but this is for the folks at home so when the battle begins berithia summons these four ads called novas and the amount of novas that are on the field are relative to how high her defense is and this is her i think it's just her physical defense not her ether defense and so what you have to do is quickly burn down these ads because they are strong and they will overwhelm you and they will even body block you from being able to resurrect dead ally so once they're all gone you have a window of time to kill them but you might actually just want to kill maybe two or three of them to keep her from respawning all four of them and i've not been able to do that and, and over time she didn't end up just overwhelming me and I've had to reconstruct my party because my party was predominantly physical attackers. Dunban and Yora are like auto attackers um, in my case. Plus I have Sharla because she keeps everybody up with delicious heal bombs and it just wasn't cutting it. I had to reconstruct my party. I had to reconstruct the skills on some of my party and over time what worked is playing Melia and using her burst ether damage to kill basically whatever I wanted because once you load her up on ethers, you will chunk these Novas down real hard, and you will even chunk Larithia pretty hard as well. It would end up being on my 15th through 18th try until I actually took her down. <laughs> In my opinion, this Disciple, Larithia, Telethia monstrosity boss is by far the hardest boss in the game. I'm surprised she was shitting on me as as hard as she was. I definitely had a tough time as well. What was your experience, Nate? Guess who my savior was. Ricky. Exactly. (laughs) No. Yes. Tell me all about it, man. Well, so I really struggled because I was trying to kill all four ads as a good World of Warcraft player. You kill the ads, right? Sure. It took some time, but I noticed Larithia has a defense buff for sure. You hit her and there's the two down icons on all your numbers. You're doing almost no damage. But killing one ad will give her a debuff. And at that point, she's able to take some kind of damage. And what Ricky can do is he 
he can just load her up with debuffs that, for whatever reason, were doing work when she had that debuff on. Hmm. But he's also shitting on everything else around him as well. He's poisoning them, he's burninating them, he's just puking all over the place. <laughs> I had him in the party, I had Dunbin spinning to his life away, and I actually took Sharla out of the party as well, and I had Fiora doing her high tension explosions. So I would kill one of the orbs, and the other ones would be like two-thirds dead, but I would leave them because Lerithia would have her debuff on her. I would then command everybody to switch to Lerithia, and then once she had gone through her cycle and built her shield back up, I would take out another, just one orb to give her that debuff and rinse and repeat. So for me, it took three tries. My first time in there, my party was just not equipped to deal with her at all, and once I switched to that AoE slash abilities that ignore some versions of armor as long as they don't have a straight up buff that says they can't be harmed by like 99% like she did. I, I don't even know how it works. You know, somebody could come in here and say, well, if you read the wiki, it's it actually works this way. I have no idea. I didn't look it up. I didn't look at any strategies. This is what I'm gleaning off of just playing it. Mm -hmm. It seemed like Ricky's status effects do not obey the same rules as somebody smacking her with a sword. That was my savior. But it took forever, too, because I was doing this cycle that would, like, per cycle, I'd maybe get 5 or 10% of her health done. So I was there for a good oh, okay. 15 minutes, 10 minutes, I don't know. Okay. It felt really long. For my, it took me hours before I figured it out, but when I did figure it out, I did not. This boss battle didn't take me quite that long. And while we call these kinds of boss battles control fights, what that means is, is yeah, there's a boss to DPS, but there's lots of chaos going on that everybody has to contend with. Um, my mind goes to Yog saran at the end of Ulduar. Madness will consume you! Or yes, we've got the giant nightmare creature in the center of the room to kill, but there are tentacles grabbing people. They need to be released. There are poison pools that we need to dodge. There is an insanity meter that everybody's contending with, and they have to control the amount of uh, stress and insanity. This is starting to sound like Darkest Dungeon. <laughs> they have to control the amount of insanity they have to endure, and then once you get them into a certain position, these portals appear, and your highest damage dealer's got to jump in, and they've got this whole hallucination thing that they have to do while everybody else is still contending with all the chaos outside. That's just an example of a chaos fight. This isn't a tank and spank. Control fights are some of the most complicated boss fights you can get in a video game because there are all these additional elements that you have to consider before burning it down. I mean, my first attempt for the Lurthia was like, hey, you know what? To hell with these Novas. I'm just going to burn her down with 100% armor up. Two of my three heroes are just, you know, attack damage folks. Can't do that in a control fight. And I wish more fights in the game had some sort of element that it's like, you can't just do that. There's so many moving parts in this game i understand that it's a wonder that all of this was accomplished or i'd say most all of everything we see in this game was accomplished on the wii that blows my mind when i think about like wait this was on the fucking wii what right i would have liked to see in a little bit more of that but you don't to get any of this from an rpg you typically don't get that's one thing that blew me away watching my wife play persona 5 so many fights that have advanced complicated strategies that just do not let you brute force your way through them really interesting stuff mm -hmm. so she dies and it's glorious we are thrilled to put her down yeah i'm there we, we, we put her over our knee i'm not going there. <laughs> we turn we turn her her riding crop on her okay uh yeah so she erupts in white light 
and Melia engulfed in this light sees a vision of Callian in this last gasp of his energy. Oh, yes. Callian confirms what we thought about the diluted High Antia bloodline, restoring their people, etc. He's actually going into a lot of meticulous detail for not knowing how much time he has in the emotions cloud. Or he does say, you're the only one who can stop Zanza. Callian says that he will stop Lori. I mean, we just kicked her ass, but apparently there's a little bit more to do here. Her body erupts as she screams, she was promised immortality. My body! No! I was promised immortality! That is her big character arc I was alluding to earlier. Apparently, she was a part of a member of something here. Her boss fight, she's listed as Disciple Labrithia. Yeah. Dixon was also listed as Zanza's Disciple by Egil. So I don't know. Is she a part of the Trinity? We discussed this earlier. Her, her big character arc was essentially hey maybe on the next go around in the reset i'm gonna make you an immortal demigod or important figure of some sort sure you know what larithia for a while i thought you had it going on all by your lonesome you don't need a god to change you into anything else but your wonderful self you just had to believe and stick through it but now you're fucking dead see ya Bye-bye, Larithia. So also that big conversation between Melia and Callian, Ricky heard the whole thing outside of the emotions cloud. Ricky Ricky says he was listening, and everybody's kind of shocked that he could hear it, but he's in tune with the spirits, I guess. Ricky's summation of the entire thing is, Melia, hope of bird people. Callian say hope of bird people. (laughs) Right on, dude. There should be like a Xenoblade abridged narrated exclusively by Ricky. Oh, yes. No pawn commentary. Yeah. No commentary. Yeah. Lastly, as the scene clears, I'm going to poke at this a little bit and I got some questions. Dixon shows up taunting us to join him on Prison Isle for a final battle and he creates a little teleporter for us to join him there. So hold on. This place where Egil landed a crucial blow to give us an opening doesn't lead to the place where we take down Bionis? Um, I think it's inside the heart. Now you might say Prison Island is way bigger than like the model of the heart as it was beating before we went into it, but but I don't know. Oh, hey, Nate, I think I got it. Okay, so where was the Makanis core on Makanis? Uh, in the chest. Was it? Or was it in the head? I'd, I'd have to pop it open and look. Mm-hmm. I think it was in the head, and so maybe it's a portal from the heart to the head. But if it's not, if it remains in the heart, that would be a pretty interesting psychoanalytical analysis where the mechanical titan's core is in its head. Mm-hmm. And is very logical, but the Bionis Titan's core is in its heart, suggesting it's more emotional, a left brain, right brain sort of duality. It still doesn't shake my point, though, that the way we get to where we need to go is via a portal offered to us by our enemy. Guess what? He could have made that portal outside Colony 6. (laughs) But instead, he had to have his friend die in a boss battle. So another reason why Larithia probably hates him. The creepy comments. She was making some creepy comments of her own, though. Let's be honest. Right. And then him just letting her die for fun because he likes watching battles, I guess. You want to know what I would do, though? Mm. So... I'm a Hyantia, and I'm part of this 10,000-year-long dynasty, and I'm constantly worried about Bionis waking up, being turned into Telethia. Another thing I'll say quick, too, is 
we've gone from researchers researching statues of Hyantia, wondering why they have depictions of extra wings, wondering why there are depictions of them more beast-like than before, to just, this is common knowledge known by everyone, even random people that they're like, oh yeah, we all knew we were going to turn into the Zalithia. Yeah, of course. When did that change? <laughs> in the story to where nobody knew to everybody do you get where i'm going with that with like the ancient research they were doing uh-huh and melia didn't know because we saw the statue on prison island back in the day and she was like hmm i have no idea i i, I guess i don't know that answer yeah i don't know if that's like a tactical withholding of information or just the the writing demanded it i'm gonna go back to my original point here of i'm a high anti and i've got ten thousand years to figure this shit out or at least i you know i have a little bit of time enough time to build a giant temple and program ai to warn my descendants to start getting impregnated by some homs, right? Mm -hmm. So you know what I would do? I'd take all that technology, the cities I've built, the weapons I've developed, all of my power. I have free, unfettered access to the beating heart of the being that threatens me and all life on it. I will line that heart with tactical nukes, <laughs> bore into every vein and orifice and corner I can, chop off <laughs> areas of blood flow and get rid of those Selua's and other defending entities. Well, they weren't there until I woke up, but you get what I'm saying. Essentially, you had 10,000 years to figure it out with this heart and you did nothing about it. Whereas, you know, the BIOS wakes up and you can just press a button and kaboom, the entire core of its being can just be taken out immediately. A doomsday switch. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like a, a little bit of negligence or just lack of creativity for them to be like, the only thing we can do is just have a lot of sex with white people. Oh, no. That's our master plan. Just keep banging those homs, dude. Yeah, and don't leave Atheron out. Just have some black Hyantias. There are some darker Hyantias. Oh, yeah, that is true. Yeah. It's like, guys, this entire being is asleep. Just do whatever the hell you want. The the homs are like the COVID of Bionis. We've been walking around inside its lungs, beating the shit out of it. <laughs> Anyway, that's all I got for now. I, why Why did we need a teleporter to get to the, the main area? I don't know. Why did Dixon need to show up? Exactly. Wasn't the Callion farewell? Didn't that put a fine enough point to it? We are splicing the chapter ourselves. Technically, this is not a chapter cutoff. There's just a whole lot of, like, the ending was written before the sequence, right? Mm. Go here. Well, how do we get there? Oh, yeah, I guess uh, Dixon helps? Why does Dixon help? Oh, he'll tell you later. Don't worry about it. It's like, it's a lot. It's a lot. So this grants us access to the Bionis Corp. I don't go in just yet because I want to do some grinding. I have some questioning I want to do. And we're going to talk about that next episode. Kind of picturing that the next episodes are going to go like this. So the next one we'll be discussing the end game and other sorts of grinding that we're probably going to be doing. And then following that, assuming there's enough content to talk about, I'm sure there is, the following episode will be the next confrontation, the next scripted sort of stuff happening maybe that takes us to, to the end of the game or maybe not and then even after that there's the future connected chapter to play as well so nay we probably have at least three more episodes to go shall i clinch this clinch away clinch away at one hour 59 minutes jeezy crazy yeah do you imagine if we did the fucking side content hey the, the last uh xenogears episode from from retro am was like two and a half hours there was a retro am slash resonant arc perfect works analysis that was four hours hmm. yeah yeah I, I saw that episode i thought i would read the perfect works first and i did not digest the whole thing i got 
Lost in the sauce. Easy to do. Thank you, everybody. This has been a production of Hero with a Thousand Potions recorded on October 18th or 19th, 2022. You can email us at hero with a thousand potions at gmail.com. That's one zero 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 potions. And we're also on Discord, which you can access via our podcast description paragraph. My name is Tyler. And I am Nate. And don't give him an inch, Ryan. Hero upon breath make monsters sick. <laughs>